In this lecture, I want to major on the concept of the image of God in man. Man is not an accident. He is a creation, a special creation by God. And I just want to remind you by reading a few verses from the first chapter of Genesis uh, uh, about the way the Bible describes the creation of man. <coughs> then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. <clears throat> Man is not an accident. He is made in the image of God. <coughs> Fine. But what does that mean? What does it mean that man is made in the image of God? What, what does the Bible mean when it says image of God? And there is quite a lot of debate about this. And uh, there are many, <coughs> even Christian uh, theologians and philosophers, who play it down and suggest it's not really a, a very important concept at all. But I say it is an extremely important concept because it is the one thing that really differentiates us from the animal kingdom. It, it is the essential thing. Now, I know there are lots of other things which I've mentioned already, uh, that differentiate us and show that mankind is, is uh, living uh, and experiencing and existing on, on, on a much higher plane than the rest of the animal kingdom. But at the heart of this, why that is the case is not due to some accident of evolution and so on, as we have seen. It's due to the fact that man was specially created in the image of God. So, <coughs> what do we mean by an image? Now, I want to help, help you understand this because it is so fundamentally important uh, by using an illustration. <coughs> I want you to imagine uh, that on the platform here, there is a cot with a baby sleeping in it. I could have borrowed a cot, but nobody wanted to lend me a baby, so <laughs> <laughs> you've got to uh, <clears throat> use your imagination, which is no bad thing, of course. <clears throat> now, if I were to say to you, the cot is the image of the baby, you would say, no, no, it isn't. 
doesn't bear any resemblance to the baby at all. You can't say the cot is the image of the baby. That's talking nonsense. And then I might answer, well, the baby is using the cot. So that is why the cot is the image of the baby. Now, that is the argument, you see, that some philosophers use. They say God is using man to look after the earth. God has subcontracted the care of the earth to man. And that's what it means, that man is made in the image of God. God is using man for a certain purpose. Well, the baby is using the cot for a certain purpose. But that doesn't make the cot the image of the baby. Right, well now I, I reach behind the curtain and I bring out one of those knife-size baby dolls. Uh, especially one of the high-tech dolls, you know, that, that will cry on demand, that will demand to be fed, and needs nappy changing periodically. And I place the, the, the doll in the cot beside the baby, and I now say, the doll is the image of the baby. And I think you would be inclined to agree. Because there are some <coughs> striking similarities between the baby and the doll. Uh, the doll is roughly the right size, it's got the arms and legs that move, its uh, eyes open and close, and um, it has these various functions that a baby has that I just mentioned. Yes, it's fair enough to, to say that the doll is an image of the baby. Uh, but of course the doll is not the baby. There are also differences. Uh, the doll is made of plastic, the baby is made of flesh and blood. The baby is going to grow up, the doll isn't going to grow up. Uh, the baby is going to learn to speak, the doll will never learn to speak, although you can put a recording into it, that makes it sound as if it's speaking. Uh, you, you know there are, there are huge differences between the doll and the baby, but nevertheless, the doll is properly described as an image of the baby. Now, I'm suggesting you take, carry this across <coughs> to call man the image of God is to state that he shares, and when I say he, by the way, it's, remember you noticed in the reading, male and female, man is male and female, not just male. Uh, that, that, that man shares with God certain characteristics or attributes, if you like. There are certain of the attributes of God which he can share with man. There are other attributes he can't share with man. Uh, God is omnipotent, he can do anything. God is omniscient, he knows everything. God is omnipresent, he can be everywhere at the same time. Now, now, those are attributes that, that man cannot possibly share. But if you ask, are there attributes of God, characteristics of God that he can share with men, that he can bestow upon human beings, uh, the answer is yes, and you've only got to go to uh, Paul's list in, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 and 23, where... <coughs> Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, and he's talking about the Spirit of God. 
So, so here are things that are characteristic of God, the Holy Spirit. And what are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, all of those things are attributes of God. But Paul is telling us that if we are believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and if the Spirit of God uh, dwells within us, as is true of every true Christian, then we must be producing those same fruit. And so, you see, when God says he made man, he decided to make man, male and female, in his own image, in his likeness, he was saying that he intended to bestow upon this newly created creature, specially created creature, not evolved from an ape, but specially created, he was going to bestow upon this specially created uh, individual, or pair, couple, some of the attributes which are his, and which he shares uniquely with human beings. Doesn't share them with dogs and cats. Doesn't actually share them with angels or devils. Uh, you know, he, he shares them uniquely with human beings. And you see, this <coughs> immediately, if you take this on board, and I'm going to try to demonstrate it, of course, in, in what remains of this hour, <coughs> if you take this on board, it elevates the identity of man to a new level. I started the morning by saying that we were being robbed of our identity as human beings. Well, here we are trying to re reinstate our identity as human beings. What is our identity? We are uniquely made in the image of God. That's what distinguishes us from all other created things. And so let's look at this. Now, what are these shared attributes? Uh, I, I give six in the book. Uh, I'm only going to pick out three this morning because time won't allow us to go any further than that. <coughs> I want us to pick out three attributes <coughs> of God that he shares with man and, and to demonstrate that he does share them with man. Um, <coughs> The first is spirituality, the second is mind, and the third is language. Now, that, that doesn't, obviously, does not cover the whole spectrum, but they are three attributes that God shares with man that makes man what he is, and in importantly, places man under an obligation to God. And we'll come to that at the end. But first of all, <coughs> man shares with God the attribute of spirituality. In other words, man is a spiritual being as well as a material being. Now, the Lord Jesus said uh, in John chapter 4, he said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
God is spirit. There is no contention really about that. God is a spirit. But man is also in possession of a spirit. The spirituality that is characteristic of God <laughs> is shared with human beings and uniquely so. Now, <coughs> if, you, if, if you go through the Bible and <coughs> uh, count the number of times the word spirit is used in our English Bible, uh, the answer is about 550 times. Now, some of those references are to angels, and some of them are to evil spirits. But the vast majority of them refer to either God or man. And there is just one reference to the spirit of a beast, of an animal. One reference against those 550 uh, other references. And that is in the book of Ecclesiastes and chapter 3 and verse 21 where Solomon is being cynical. He's basically asking the question, well, what's the difference between a man and a beast? He says, what's the difference? They both die, so they're equivalent. Uh, you know, he's playing devil's advocate at that point saying exactly what the, the materialist says. Man is just an animal like any other animal. And uh, cynically, he says, that is the case. Remember, Ecclesiastes is the book which has as one of its uh, themes um, the um, words, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's a lot of cynicism in that book. But that is the only place in the whole of Scripture, and of course at the end of the book, um, Solomon, as it were, comes to his senses, and he says, let us hear an end of the matter. <clears throat> uh, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So he got over his cynicism, as it were, as he went through the book. We are spiritual beings. And nothing else has that quality. Nothing else in the world of living creatures has that quality. Now, you might say, well, how do you prove that? How do you prove that? Well, I prove it by reference to a letter that Benjamin Franklin wrote to a French scientist in um, 1789. Uh, I never was very good at remembering dates. <laughs> now, um, not a lot of people know that, uh, that he wrote this letter, except for the fact that in the letter, he uses a phrase, he makes a statement that is used today, and you will have heard it used. He makes a statement. Does anyone know what that statement is. Well, we obviously don't have a lot of historians or economists with us today. The statement he made in the letter was, nothing 
is certain except death and taxes. And he proved his point by dying the following year. Nothing is certain in this life but death and taxes. And one of the chapters in the book is entitled Death and Taxes. And the point I'm making <coughs> is this, that human beings are the only species uh, that worries about death or taxes. Uh, chickens and chimpanzees are quite innocent of any worry or concern about death and taxes. Uh, well, let's forget taxes for the moment and talk about death. And I know <coughs> it won't be your favorite subject. We don't like to talk about death. But that simply illustrates the point I'm making, that human beings, they're really only people who worry about death or who think about death. Um, <coughs> don't quite know where to start with uh, illustrating this point. But um, you pick up any newspaper uh, or listen to any television news broadcast, you listen to any drama on television, and there will be death all over it. You go to the local bookshop and there'll be shelves full of books written around the fact that somebody has died or been killed or been murdered. And, and human beings have this strange love-hate relationship with the subject of death, which is not true of any other living creature. We, as human beings, bury our dead. Animals don't. Not only do we bury our dead, but we, we bury them with some degree of ceremony. We bury them with praise, with uh, eulogies. Uh, we bury them with mourning and sorrow. We have processions for famous people who have died. Uh, death is, is a big business uh, on occasions. But even for ordinary people, it is true, as the, as, as the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2, he speaks of those who all their lifetime were in bondage through fear of death. And he's describing the generality of mankind. Now, I know you might say, well, just a minute, I'm not afraid to die. If you're a Christian, you should be able to say, I am not afraid to die. But that's not what... Hebrews says, fear of death, not fear of dying. And although we personally may not be afraid of dying, uh, I guess we are all afraid, or at least anxious, about the possible death of a loved one, uh, of, of a parent or a child, or the death of somebody upon whom we, we greatly depend. We are worried about death. And of course, if we believe the Bible, we're even more worried because it says it is given to man once to die and after this, the judgment. So you have this preoccupation with, with death. 
we bury people, uh, or, or at least ancients buried people, with all kinds of equipment to help them on the other side of death. The first emperor of China, uh, I'm sure you know about this, um, was buried with a vast army of terracotta warriors, which, had been, which are still being uncovered. Huge quantity of terracotta, terracotta uh, images of warriors. Um, why? It was so that he had, would have an army. And, and even um, ordinary people in ancient Greece were buried with a coin in their mouth because their religion taught them that when a person dies, they have to cross the river Styx into an unknown future. And they need to pay the ferryman to take them across the river. So they need some money. They're buried with a coin in their mouth. And, and this is, um, is so ubiquitous. I read you another um, extract here. Uh, this is an anthropologist uh, writing. <clears throat> uh, the results of the current analysis, I've been doing some research, shows that most societies treat death not as a transition into nothingness, but to some other unknown state. To ensure that this transition is smooth and non-problematic, living people must engage in a predetermined set of rituals in accordance with all cultural norms and expectations. That's not a Christian speaking, it's just, just a statement that societies throughout history and in all parts of the world bury their dead with ceremony and in the expectation that they are transiting trans, 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 um, to a new life. They're not just disappearing. Now, I, I fully realize that many people do think that death is an annihilation, the, the end, and nothing follows. But equally, there are very many people who see death as a transition. Now, it's only man who has that, has that perspective upon death. And the reason we have that perspective upon death is that we are spiritual beings. We recognize that we possess spirits. Spirits which have got to go somewhere, if you like, when we die. So there, there we have, first of all, the evidence that man is unique in possessing not only a spirituality, but in an awareness of having that spirituality and of acting in a, a way consistent with that awareness. We share spirituality with God. And of course this does lay upon us certain responsibilities. And this perhaps is why people don't like thinking about death. Uh, I just quoted the statement that uh, it had given to man once to die, but after this, the judgment. The spirituality of man, which he shares with God, 
has the implication that at some stage we're going to have to answer to God for the way we've lived. It implies that we uniquely are capable of sin, which basically is coming short of God's requirements for human life, God's expectations. And there is a judgment to come. And of course the Apostle Paul goes on uh, to, uh, to, to really focus upon this in preaching to Athens uh, when he, he, he said that God has appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has chosen and has given assurance to all men that this judgment is coming by raising him from the dead. It links into the resurrection of Jesus Christ even. But, but even without that specific application, we recognize, because we are spiritual beings, we recognize that we have a moral aspect to our nature. We know the difference between right and wrong. We know what it is to sin. A, a, a dog cannot sin. A, a dog can walk into your kitchen uh, with muddy feet and leave paw marks all over the floor. You don't accuse the dog of sin. You may scold the dog uh, and you may try to teach it to wipe its feet next time. It won't be a ready learner, I'm afraid. But nevertheless, um, you don't say the dog has sinned, do you? That the dog has broken some moral law or principle. Because the dog is not a spiritual being. But we are. And we know what it is to break moral rules. Even our own, even if we're atheists, we know what it is to break the rules of morality. And we feel guilty about it. So there, there is one aspect that we uniquely share with God. One of the characteristics that go towards the total image of God in man. Now the second one uh, I want to talk about is mind. We possess mind in a way that no other creatures possess it. Now, uh, we mustn't get confused about this because clearly uh, animals, many animals, have intelligence. They can learn. They can perform amazing instinctive feats. Uh, they, can, uh, they, they can amaze us by their learning ability. Uh, but that is not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about mind. Mind is the capacity for thought, essentially. The, the ability to, to think about things. Um, there's a technical word that the, the, the philosophers use. Uh, intentionality. Intentionality, the ability to think about things. And to think about things when they're not in our sight. I'm sure, I'm sure a, a, an animal, I'm sure a chimpanzee thinks about a banana when it sees a banana. Uh, 
but but we can think about things that that we're not looking at. They, we can think about things even that do not exist, like unicorns. You can think about a unicorn. Uh, unicorns, at least in the classical sense of that word, do not exist, but you can think about them. If you're gifted, you could write a novel about unicorns. You can write fiction. And uh, this ability to, to think about things is a fantastic ability that sets man apart from all other members of the living world. Mind is a unique ability of man. And, why? It's shared with God. Uh, one of my favorite passages in um, <coughs> the book of Isaiah, uh, I think, points this up rather nicely. In Isaiah 55, uh, the Lord uh, is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Get that? Underline that word. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let them return to the Lord um, for he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts, this is God speaking, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As, my, as heaven is high above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. Now, I, I like that passage in the present context because it talks about the thoughts of God and the thoughts of man. You couldn't say that about any animal. God has thoughts and he has imparted the capacity for thought to human beings. So we also have thoughts. And that again brings us back to a sense of responsibility because God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and, and his ways than our ways. So he calls upon the unrighteous person, and we are all unrighteous by nature, let's be clear about that. By nature we are all unrighteous, we do not, do not meet the expect expectations of God in terms of our moral behavior. Let the unrighteous person forsake his thoughts. So we're not saying that the thoughts that we think are the same as the thoughts that God thinks. What we are saying is that the capacity for thought is a shared capacity. It is an attribute of God that he has shared with man. And that, of course, leads to a, an enormous amount of debate um, in, uh, among psychologists. And again, I've got a whole chapter on it in the book. Uh, because very often um, modern psychologists say that we don't have a mind, that, that the mind is an illusion, that we have a brain, a physical organ that is the brain, and uh, in that physical organ certain important things go on. Uh, but when we say we, we have a mind, 
that is somehow distinct from the brain. The mind is not a physical organ. It is, it is, is a capability, is a capacity. Uh, they say, no, well, mind is an illusion. Or they say it's just an epiphenomenon, something that, that is generated by the activity of the brain, but really has no, no significance at all. Um, and this is a big battleground. The modern atheistic or, or non-deistic concept, even some, even some deists, um, some um, theists and deists, uh, subscribe to the idea that mind is an illusion, that the only reality is the physical organ called the brain. And that that generates all kinds of things that we interpret as being mind. And we think that mind can affect the brain, but it can't, they say, because it's just a phenomenon arising from the brain, a bit like the, the, the hum of my, uh, my freezer. I go into the, the utility room and we've got a freezer there and, and uh, if it's working satisfactorily I can hear the, the hum of the motor. But the, 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 the hum of the motor is not essential. If I soundproofed the freezer so that I couldn't hear the hum, it still worked just as well as a freezer. And, and so, if you like, the, the idea is that the mind, our thoughts, our desires, our ambitions, our hopes, our sense of personality, our sense of being, our loves, our joys, all these things, they're not real, according to these uh, psychologists and, and other scientists. There's a great push today to get across this idea that the mind is just a byproduct, a meaningless byproduct of a physical organ, the brain. Well, <laughs> um, there are all sorts of quotes there and I haven't picked any out to, to give to you, but, but we know that's not right. Because the things that go on in our minds are the only things that make life worth living. Our love, our joy, our hope, our enjoyment of music, of people, of friendship, of fellowship, our enjoyment of virtually everything uh, uh, that we enjoy in this world that makes our lives worth living is all going on in our mind. And so the mind is something very important. And God has a mind. God has thoughts. And we have thought, but in the sense I'm using the word mind, uh, animals do not. So there again, we have a second attribute that can be demonstrated to be a unique possession of mankind in the world of living things. It is also an attribute of God. God has made man in his image, he shared with man those attributes. And the third and final one I, I want to mention is language. Language. Now, animals communicate, and uh, sometimes in a most, um, most uh, ingenious way. 
You're probably familiar with the fact that when a honeybee finds uh, a good store of nectar, goes back to the hive and performs a dance. A dance which shows the other bees not only the direction in which they've got to go to find this hoard of nectar, but also tells them how far away it is. And this is a fantastic facility of communication. Uh, ants communicate by, um, by odors, by, by pheromones. pheromones. Um, uh, ants are able to communicate with one another. So communication is common among animals, but language is not. Uh, as one philosopher said, uh, there are plenty of animals can let us know they're hungry, but only man can ask for a banana. Um, and that is true. That is true. We have this capacity uh, of language, and it's closely tied, of course, with the, uh, with the concept of mind. Because if you think about it, you can't think about anything without employing language. You try. You try to think about something without using nouns to describe things, um, adjectives to describe the nouns, verbs to describe action. Um, you cannot describe anything you think about without the use of language. And language, by common consent, is a unique capacity of human beings. And you see, God uses language. There's a tremendous uh, similarity. How did creation come into being? God said, let there be light. God is using language. Now, it doesn't mean that he, he used some ancient language, Hebrew or something like that, uh, to, to utter an audible sound. God saying is, is a metaphor that says, basically, God commanded. He issued a command. But nevertheless, uh, the language of language, if you like, is used throughout the creation narrative. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be um, a division between the waters uh, under the firmament and the waters above the firmament. God said, let the earth bring forth, let the seas bring forth. God said, God said, God said. God used language to create. But then he also uses language to uphold and sustain the universe. In the opening verses of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, we read this, God who at sundry times and in different ways spoke to our fathers through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And of course, we who are Christians, I'm not suggesting that you're all Christians, I think most of you are, but we who are Christians declare that the Bible is the word of God. 
as uh, David the psalmist said, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was in my tongue. And uh, uh, he upholds all things by the word of his power. I got that out of order a bit. But uh, in the opening verses of Hebrews, uh, we're told that, that God has spoken to us by his Son, whom, whom uh, he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, when he had, and upholding all things by the word of his power, that's the verse I was trying to get to, up, he upholds all things by the word of his power. So that which sustains this universe is described in the Bible as the word of the power of God. That's a remarkable statement. So God uses, uses speech, first of all, in creation. He uses speech in the sustenance of the universe. And he uses speech in the revelation of salvation. That's, we come back to the same verses, that's why I got things out of order, uh, because I want to come back to Hebrews chapter 1, those opening three verses, uh, where we are told that God has in these last days spoken to us through his Son. He refers to the Old Testament, and he says in the past God, God spoke through the prophets to the people. But now, eventually, in his own time, God has spoken to mankind, to the whole human race, through Jesus Christ, through his Son. And uh, in John's Gospel, of course, the opening verses says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's he talking about? Talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's Word to man. Human beings share the powers of language that are utterly unique in the world of living creatures to man. And he shares one of the most amazing, uh, one of the most important, one of the most glorious attributes of God, the attribute of language. And I want to finish what I have to say this morning by saying, that we must listen when God speaks. He has spoken to us through Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus Christ shown to us? What, what is it that Jesus Christ has revealed to us uh, that constitutes God's message through him to us? And, of course, that is what we call the gospel. The gospel, which is bad news before it's good news, the bad news is that we have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that we are under the condemnation of God as a consequence of our sin. But the good news, of course, is that Jesus Christ came into the world and uh, he bore our sins when he died upon the cross, being the express image of God, we're told when he had by himself purged our sins. Some translations leave out the by himself. But when he had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. Christ came into this world to reveal God to men and women and boys and girls. And he came into this world to seek and to save those who were lost. This is God speaking, God speaking, God speaking. God is, is, is voluble. He speaks through nature. But above all, he speaks through the Bible, his word, and in particular, through Christ, his son. We share that capacity of speech. No other creature can do so because we alone are made in the image of God. And you see, the upshot of it all is that the image of God that you and I bear because we're human beings, not because we're religious, not because we've been brought up in a certain, certain uh, uh, area uh, of the world, not because uh, we've had some sort of training as young people uh, and been brought up to believe certain things. We, we share God's image, whoever we are. Even if we're atheists, we have the image of God. Even if we deny the existence of God, we have the image of God. And that image of God, evidenced in the shared characteristics, and we've just looked at three of them, spirituality, mind, and language. But there are many more. Those shared characteristics mean we are related to God. We were designed for fellowship with God. Why did God share these characteristics with us? What was his purpose? He didn't share them with the dogs or chickens. He shared them with us because he desired to have a relationship, a fellowship with human beings. He made us, uh, as uh, St. Augustine said, God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee, he was talking to God in prayer. God has made us for himself. How do we respond to that? And if we are Christians, how do we convey that message to those around us? Well, you say you don't find it very difficult. You don't find it very easy to, to talk to other people. Well, then give them a book and let them read for themselves. Invite them to church. Let them hear the word of God preached. In many different ways, whoever we are, of reaching out to others to convince them that they are made in the image of God and that, that that lays upon them certain responsibilities to respond to the God in whose image they have been made. 